Life as a church. Uh, kids, how many of you guys like going to the swimming pool? Let me see your hands. You like going to the swimming pool? Yeah. Um, Jordan, you're not a kid, but okay. Uh, soon, buddy. You get away from me, get a little bit older, then you get to go to the swimming pool again. Uh, how about those cool swimming pools that have like the water slides and some have like, you know, they have like a play park inside the pool. They've gotten, they didn't have cool stuff like that when I was a kid. Um, but when we were living in south, or in the uh, south side of Edmonton, um, we, we had one of those pools, but it was all the way on the north side of Edmonton, and it was super cool. And Ezra was just a little guy, and he loved that pool. And so we would drive uh, periodically to that pool all the way on the north side. One afternoon, Monday afternoon, we're headed out to that swimming pool on the other side of the city. And as I pull out of the driveway and onto the road, Ezra just began to lose it. Like he is yelling, Dad, it's not the right way. You're going the wrong way. And he's crying and he's, and he's yelling at me, Dad. This, and I tried to explain to him, I know the way. I'm going the right way. And, and, and he insisted, no, this is the wrong way. And the more I tried to explain it, the more angry he got. And, and he pleaded with me with tears the whole drive. It was a long drive the whole way. This is not the right way. You're going the wrong way. There was not one second of that drive that I didn't know exactly where we were and exactly where we were going and exactly how to get there. I find it quite amusing how much having children teaches us about our relationship with the Lord from the other side. It's so easy for me to chuckle at little Ezra as he's crying and screaming, and I obviously know the way. This is obviously ridiculous. And yet, as soon as the Lord takes a left turn in my life that I don't like, that I don't understand, that I don't agree with, instead of trusting the Lord and his wisdom and his sovereignty, I, I'm immediately crying out, God, not this way. What are you doing, Lord? This isn't the plan. This is not where we're going. First fill in, it is hard to truly trust the Lord. It's hard. It's not an easy thing. Genesis 12, open with God's promise to Abram. There's three just essential pieces to that promise. The promise of, of the land, the promise of an offspring, and the promise of God's blessing. That's the destination. That's where God has told Abram, this is where we're going. Land and offspring and blessing. That's the destination. And at first, Abram receives those promises with faith. And we saw him trusting the Lord. He leaves behind his family and his country and Ur to to go to this land that God says, I'll show you where it is. He doesn't even know where he's going, but he trusts God and he steps out and he follows and it's amazing. The Lord brought him into the land of Canaan and he said, this is it. This is the land. And there Abram built an altar to the Lord, right? Remember that in the middle of the pagan idols and pagan places of worship, Abram built an altar to the Lord. But Abram's faith, as so often is the case, is soon tested. After the the spiritual high comes famine, and in Abram's case, quite literally, a famine comes into the land of Canaan. There's no food. He doesn't know what to do, and he's overcome by fear, and he began to cry out from the back seat, God, this isn't the way. This was not the plan. This can't be right, and, and he's overcome with fear, and because of his fear, he goes down to Egypt. He looks for worldly solutions to his problem. Because of his fear, Abram asks his wife Sarai to lie 
to tell them, tell them you're my sister and not my wife, and then they'll treat me better because of you. Abram, he's, he's trying to get to God's promises going his own way. And it's a disaster. It's a mess. Now, God is still faithful. God rescued Abram out of Egypt, protected Sarai. But chapter 12 ends with Abram uh, as an example of what not to do. Right? He is a great example of what not to do. The good news is uh, Abram learns from his mistakes. He's, he's growing. He's progressing. Abram sees God's faithfulness there in Egypt. And then in chapter 13, we see Abram as an example of faith through trial. That's the title of our sermon this morning. So look at chapter 13, faith through the trial. So look with me, chapter three, uh, or sorry, chapter 13. Um, hold on, we're going to read the whole chapter together, and, uh, and then we'll walk through it. Genesis 13, starting verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the land of the Lord, like the garden, sorry, uh, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan with Lot, uh, well, Lot settled. Uh, among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length of the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and, became, er, and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that it is the sword of the Spirit that divides between bones and marrow, that it cuts to the heart. God, we need it this morning. 
Lord, our hearts are often hard and cold. We are often slow to hear, slow to understand. We need your spirit. Would you be at work in us? Would you open our eyes to see your truth? Would you soften our hearts to be shaped and molded by it? God, would you work in my heart even as I preach? Lord, we thank you that your word will not return void. So Lord, if there's anything that, that I have to say that is not of you, may those words fall to the ground, be lost and forgotten. But may your word accomplish what it sets out to do. May it produce the fruit of righteousness in us this morning for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, Abram faces another trial. The first trial was the, the famine in the land that threatened God's promise, the, the land, the, the offspring. It's threatened by this famine that threatens to kill them. The second trial is this argument with Lot. Remember, Lot is Abram's nephew. It's his brother's oldest son, but his brother has passed away, and so Lot is kind of leading that branch of the family. And they've been traveling together. And the problem is that with, with all of their sheep and their livestock, as the Lord is blessing them, they're, they're just running out of room. Um, we're told there the, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land. That probably is a hint as to why they're running out of the room. Um, the best land has already been settled in. They're left with the leftovers, and there's a lot of them. And so their herdsmen are beginning to bump into each other and argue about who gets to pasture on, on which, uh, which plot of land and, and, and how to care for their flocks. And this tension is building. But this time, Abram will act out of faith rather than out of fear. But before that, the first thing we see in verses 1 to 4 is that faith through trial is rooted in worship. It's rooted in worship. That's where it begins. Look at verses 1 to 4. It tells us that, that Abram went up from Egypt. He retraces his steps he goes back to the Negev and then back to Bethel, where his tent was at the beginning. Back to the place where he had made the altar at first. And there he calls on the name of the Lord. He, he worships God there. Uh, his, his faith is rooted in worship. But notice, as we're looking at this first section, all that language of returning. Abram had sinned. He, he, he was fearful. He didn't trust God. And he ran down to, to Egypt. Now he's going back. He, he's, Moses is telling us very, very clearly, he's, he's literally going back to the place of faith. He has turned around. He's going back. He's returning. Um, faith is rooted in worship, and worship begins with repentance. Worship begins with repentance. Abram, again, very literally, physically, has to retrace his steps, leave behind the place where his sin took him and go back to where his faith was strong, a place where he built the altar before the Lord. True worship begins with repentance. It's easy to think of repentance as kind of a one-time thing, like I did that, right? I prayed that prayer. I repented of my sin. Um, the reality is, as believers, even though we're forgiven, even though we have this, this new nature in us, um, if you've been a believer for more than about 30 seconds, you know we continue to sin. We continue to struggle with that old nature in us. And, and so we need to continue to repent. Um, how many of you are familiar with the, the 95 Theses? Kids, you heard of that before? Come on, who's got nerdy parents? 
The 95 Theses, that's the, the document that Martin Luther nailed to the door uh, of Wittenberg Church. Um, you thought October 31st was Halloween. No, it's Reformation Day. Um, that, that's what sparked the Protestant Reformation. You know what number one is on that list? The first thesis is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of a believer is to be a life of repentance. That's the Christian life. It's, it's ongoing repentance. Maybe this week you found yourself down in Egypt. You made decisions based in fear rather than in faith. You ran after the lies of this world rather than trusting God and his promises. What do you do? You've sinned and you know it and it's miserable, the answer is you go back. You return. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, through the, through the New Testament, um, the, the Lord is, is quoted saying, return to me. Come back, sinners. He calls out to those who've walked away from him for years, even generations. He says, come back. Return. There's mercy and grace. It's astounding, really. Just like Abram, acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that you're not where you should be. And go back to the place of faith. True worship always begins with repentance. And true worship then builds faith. Worship um, is what we call a means of grace. It's a, a tool through which the, the grace of God's strengthening, empowering grace fills us, comes to us. Like cold water flows through a hose to the thirsty, God's grace flows through worship to the weak. And, and it strengthens our faith. You want to be stronger in faith? You want to more consistently walk with the Lord? You want to grow in obedience and trust in him? Worship. Worship. Worship is a, is a weapon to destroy unbelief. Worship is a weapon to destroy unbelief. There's this fantastic story in, in 2 Chronicles 20 that just is, is such a great picture of that truth. Um, king Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, um, and the, the Moabites and the Ammonites have joined together to attack them. And they are outnumbered and outgunned. They don't stand a chance here. Many of us are familiar with verse 12, this great prayer um, that Jehoshaphat prays. And he ends his prayer saying, For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Maybe you feel that uh, as you look at your, your sinful life, the temptation that's bombarding you. I am powerless against this great horde. Jehoshaphat goes on to say, we're powerless against this great horde coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a great statement of faith. Our eyes are on you. Fear, anxiety, temptation. What does Jehoshaphat do? Uh, how does he proceed with his eyes on the Lord? Well, trusting in the Lord, uh, verse 21 then says this. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire 
as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. You catch that? This is craziness. This is a king going to war against mighty armies and he doesn't muster all of his strength. He doesn't tell them to to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. He doesn't bring together his, his mighty strong warriors. He calls out the choir. Like, I don't know about you, but a choir in my mind doesn't conjure images of, of strong, burly men, right? Like, no offense to our worship guy, but I mean, just the, like, kind of leans that way, right? He brings out the choir. What are you doing? This is, this is insanity. I mean, Roman's a pretty tough guy, but, but I wouldn't put him on the front line with his guitar. Give a man a sword. As they march forward, they're singing praise to God. Verse 22 and 23 says this. When they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. When they had uh, made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, They all help to destroy one another. God turned these armies against themselves. They start fighting amongst themselves. They destroy themselves. What did Israel do? They worshiped, right? And they're lined up against this mighty army. And Jehoshaphat says, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to go out with swords and battle axes. We're going to thank the Lord and praise him. And God just wipes them out. What a beautiful picture. Your greatest weapon against temptation. Your greatest weapon against fear and faithlessness is worship. When you go to, the, to battle against your enemy that would seek to destroy you, that would, would seek to destroy your soul, we ought to go in singing. Acts 4. Another example, Peter and John are put in prison. They'd been preaching the gospel and they're arrested and put in prison. This is very, very early church. They're still trying to figure out what's going on and and they're under attack and they gather together to pray. Where does their prayer start? Worship. Acts 4.24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They're quoting scripture. They're worshiping God. We're under attack. We we need to worship. They were tempted to fear. They were tempted to be cowards. So they ran to worship the Lord. Um, don't, Don't miss this. Like immovable faith in trials obedience through temptation, strength in the spiritual battles of this life is available to you and it's rooted in worship. When you're tempted to sin, fight back with worship. You're feeling weak. You're feeling tempted. Fear begins to creep in. Anxiety is building. Lust is coming on. Anger or jealousy or despair are creeping into your heart. You can feel it coming. What do you do? It's really tempting, at least it is for me, to say, I'm, this time I got it. This time I'm not going down. 
I'm going to muster all of my strength. I'm going I'm to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going I'm to bring all my courage and my strength. And how many times that fails? Maybe try worship. Praise the Lord. Take some time to pray. And maybe our prayers are best spent not saying, God, help me, this is so hard. But God, you are gracious. You are strong enough. You are holy. Pray about his grace, his might, his sovereign goodness. Turn on some worship music. Begin to sing. Watch temptation just begin to fight amongst itself and destroy itself. Faith through trial is rooted in worship. Worship begins in repentance and worship builds our faith. It's a mighty weapon. Secondly then, faith through trial is realized in humility. It's realized in humility. Now that's a, a different word, of the use of the word realized than maybe we're used to. Not realized as in, aha, I see now, now I understand. But, but rather realized as in it becomes real, Right? Our faith, the, the idea of our faith becomes something real in humility. It, it becomes tangible. It's lived out in humility. Um, look with me, verses uh, 5 to 13. Starting verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were great, and they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're, we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. If you take the right hand, then I will go left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It should be obvious as we think about these two, how, how worship and humility are connected, right? The bigger we see God, the smaller we see ourselves. The more we look at him, the less we look at us. And so as this conflict arises for Abram, and, and there begins to be this strife between the herdsmen of Lot and his own herdsmen, and he's concerned about this continuing to increase and grow. This could be a real problem. There, there would be fighting and division between the, their two clans. But, but Abram's eyes aren't fixated on himself. He's, he's been worshiping. He's looking at the Lord. He trusts the Lord. And because of that worship, the way Abram responds shows great humility. First, Abram shows humility towards others, towards others, right? He's trusting in the Lord, and so he says to Lot, um, I don't want to quarrel with you. We're brothers. We're family. He doesn't try to go his own way. He, he, he tries to make peace. He says to Lot, 
The whole land is before you. You choose. You take what you want, and I'll go the other way. This is astounding. Um, kids, do you, ever, do you ever get in that situation where, like, th- there's only one piece of cake left, and there's two of you that want to eat it, right? And now we got to divide it. There's not enough for, there's only one, we got to split it in two. And that can be tricky, right? And so what my mom did for my brother and I that, that we now do for our kids, um, one person cuts it, the other person chooses, right? So then the person who's cutting has this idea they're going to get the smaller piece. And oh man, like that is so carefully measured to try to get it just exactly down the middle because you don't want the smaller piece. So that's kind of what's happening here, except there's a difference. The difference is it's Abram's cake. It's his. He's the oldest. Lot is his nephew. And and the way their culture worked, it would have been Abram's right not only to cut, but then also to choose. And he could have cut it into thirds and said, I'm going to take two thirds and you can have that third. And everyone around would have said, yep, that's fine. That's fine. That's good and right. That's Abram's decision, and and Lot needs to take what he's given. It was his to decide. But instead, Abram says to Lot, the whole land is before you. Take what you want. You choose, and whatever you want, I'll, I'll take what's left. I'll take the leftovers. That's really humble. Abram sacrifices what is rightly his in order to make peace between brothers. What a fantastic example how how to live in peace. We're called to be peacemakers. This is it. This is it. I had a friend like this in college. It was almost infuriating. We'd go to the cafeteria and I'd go for the sandwiches because it was quick and easy and he'd wait in line long for the pizza. And he'd come down and put his pizza on the table and go for a drink and I'd pretend to steal his pizza and he would give it to me. We'd, we'd be going for a drive somewhere as a group of guys, and you're trying to like, hey, rock, paper, scissors for the front seat, and he would just sit in the back seat. He would, he would just would crumble, fold every time. He was so gracious. It, it actually kind of drove me nuts. Um, I want to be like that. I want to be more like that. How many church splits would be avoided if we lived this way toward one another? One person says, I think we should paint the, or, uh, put in red carpet. And the other says, no, I think we should put in black carpet. And the first person says, our unity as a church is more important than the color of the carpet. We can do red carpet. It's over. One person says, we need to sing more hymns. And the other person says, no, we need to sing more modern songs. And so the first person says, our unity as a church is more important than our style of music. We can sing more modern songs. It's humility. It's considering others more important than yourself. It really is that simple, but churches really do split over these things. It's tragic. Families, brothers and sisters in Christ, break fellowship, stop talking to one another over preferences that divide us, and and they shouldn't. Paul actually pushes this even one step further He goes beyond this idea of deferring to one another in issues of preference. He says we should even defer in issues of justice. The city of Corinth, they were this growing 
disunity. Paul doesn't tell us what it was, but it was pretty serious because they're taking each other to court. They're, they're going to the, the Roman judicial system to try to solve these problems. They're suing one another. And at first, Paul tells them they, they shouldn't be going to the court. They should be going to the church. That's the place where brothers should solve disagreements. But then he goes even further. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, he says this. To have a lawsuit at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's tough. We like justice. We like fairness. And so probably sometimes, even with a certain amount of honesty, um, it's not about me. I just want to make sure what is fair and right is done. Paul says, in the church, we ought to value unity. We ought to value unity. Over and above even our own rights. Even over and above justice in that sense. We should rather be defrauded. Rather lose money. Be cheated and stolen from than cause disunity in the church. It would be better to simply let it go than to cause division. That takes humility. That takes a lot of humility. Abram shows that kind of humility because he's trusting in the Lord. He has humility toward others, but first and foremost, um, Abram shows humility toward the Lord. That's where this starts. Abram has this figured out, at least for right now. It doesn't look right, Lord. This doesn't seem to be good but I trust you. I trust you, Lord, more than I trust myself. I don't think this is the way it should go, but you've got it. God had promised to give him a land and an offspring and a blessing, and so he says, I don't have to fight for it. I don't have to clamor after that and try to make sure I get what's coming to me. God will do that. Rather than crying out from the back seat, God, you're going the wrong way. This isn't right. I'm supposed to get the better land, and now Lot gets to choose? No, he says, I trust the Lord to give me what is good. I trust God to fulfill his promises no matter what. Now, Lot predictably takes what looks like the better land. He, he looks to the east, and he saw uh, the, the, the Jordan Valley. That's at, at least on the edge of the promised land, if not outside the promised land. I think there's... Um, some contrast there that says it's outside the land, right? That Lot settled there, but Adam or Abram settled in Canaan. But the Jordan Valley was well watered. It looked like the Garden of Eden or like Egypt. It's green and lush. Moses is writing this, and he gives us a hint as to where this is headed. Verse 10 has this little parenthesis. That was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So the, the Israelites reading this years later, they remember Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't know that area as a fertile area. Moses says, oh, this is before that. That's where this is heading. Lot chose what was obvious in the eyes of the flesh. This is, this is the good way. This is what makes sense. It's well watered. It's lush. He went and settled there among the cities. There, there's security. There's stability there. This is a good, logical decision. 
But once again, Moses interjects. He gives us a little insight. Verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners before the Lord. The eyes of the flesh aren't always the best ones to follow. He's not trusting the Lord. He had been with Abram this whole time. Lot knew that the land of Canaan was the promised land where God was going to bless. Lot knew that God had promised to bless Abram and to bless those who blessed Abram. And rather than saying, we'll figure it out, I'm sticking with you, Abram. Or I'm going to stay as near you as I can. He, he looks out and says, oh, I'll go over there. That looks good. It says he journeyed to the east. Genesis consistently uses this language of the, the eastward journey as a, as a literary device. It tells us something. If you remember, Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden to the east. Cain, after killing his brother, is banished out to the east. The men of Babel journey to the east to build their tower. It's not a good move for Lot. Lot trusts his own plan more than God's promise. His own plan more than God's promise. And of course, we know how the story ends. Abram's faith played out in humility. Humility towards the Lord, humility towards Lot. And from a worldly perspective, it looked like everything was going right for Lot and wrong for Abram. Abram had plenty of opportunity to say, Lord, you're going the wrong way. This isn't it. This is not good. He had plenty of opportunity even to exert his own rightful authority to, to make sure that, that he got the blessing that, that made sense to him. Instead, this time, Abram trusts the Lord. He waited patiently, humbly, quietly for God's blessing, God's way. Man, how many of us, even this morning, are looking at things in your life that just aren't going the way you think they should? I wanted that. That looks better. Your marriage, your family, your career, your health, maybe something else. This is not the plan. I wanted this lush green valley over here. Maybe you've even been protesting from the back seat for a while. God, where are you taking me? This is not what I asked for. This isn't fair. I can't find the quote to properly source it. One of the commentators I read a couple of weeks ago put it this way. So simple, so profound. Are the promises of God more real to you than the circumstances around you? The promises of God more real to you than the circumstances around you? That's tough. Our eyes are powerful organs in our head. Seeing is believing, right? This looks good, but God has promised something else. God has promised his goodness another way. That's tough. Is your heart and your confidence in the Lord and your joy in him more dependent on his promises or more dependent on your circumstances? Are you willing to humble yourself before the Lord? Okay, God, clearly you know better. Your ways are not my ways. This is not the turn I would have made, but you're good and you are faithful. 
Take time to worship. Remind your heart of his grandeur and his majesty and his wisdom, his goodness and faithfulness. Humble yourself before him. Accept that even though it doesn't look like the right path to you, even though this is not the way you would have chosen to go, that he's still sovereign. He knows where he's going. Trust in his promises. Rest in his goodness. And isn't it encouraging here to see Abram grows in this, right? Faith can grow. Faith can be built up over time. Through, through experience and, and time and trusting, Abram failed the last test. His faith crumbled uh, over the trial of the famine. But having been through that, having seen the Lord's faithfulness in his failure, his faith grows. His character, his steadfastness far surpassed what we saw just verses before. God is doing that in you. He, he, he won't fail to complete this work that he started. Faith through trial is rooted in worship and realized in humility. Finally, then, it's rewarded by his assurance. It's rewarded by assurance. Look at verses 14 to 18. Let's just refresh our memory here. Starting verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if you can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted. Arise and walk through the land its, um, its length and its breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Following Abram's faithful obedience, the Lord then confirms his promise. In, in some ways, this is the, the same promise from before. All the essential elements are there, but, but he's increasing the detail. As God does through Scripture, he builds on his covenants. He tells a little more, a little fuller. 12.1, he told Abram that he would give him a land which he will show him. It's this mystery. By 12.7, he says, it's this land, the land that you're in. Here now the Lord says, look around all the land that you can see. This is it. Previously, the Lord had told Abram um, that he would make him a great nation. Now he tells him his offspring will be uh, as numerous as the dust of the earth. If anyone can count the dust, then you'll be able to count his offspring. God's not just reiterating the promise. He's, he's making it more tangible, more explicit. Abram was told to walk through the land, and so he did, finally uh, moving his tent to Mamre, and there again he builds an altar to the Lord. Again, um, as we saw in, uh, early in chapter 12, Abram lived in a tent, and he worships in stone, right? His earthly dwelling, his life here, uh, it's, it's momentary, it's portable, but his faith, his faith is in stone. He's faithful through this trial. His faith is rooted in, in worship. It's, it's realized in his humility, and then it's rewarded. Restating, reaffirming this great promise to Abram. 
Where's your faith this morning? The Lord called Abram, leave your country, leave your family, follow me to a land that I will show you. And he promised Abram great blessing. Christ calls us. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says, follow me. Leave behind the things of this world. Leave behind your, your comfort. Here, your ambitions and, and worldly hopes. Leave behind the, the lying promises of sin, the passions of the flesh. Die to yourself, and I'll bring you to a land. Eternal life in the new earth, a place of ultimate peace and rest and blessing forever. Ask yourself, do I trust him? Do I trust him? Do I believe that God knows what he's talking about? Do I believe that he knows where he's going? The road there is not always as direct as we would hope. There are detours. Sometimes there are potholes. Sometimes it's more than potholes. Sometimes it is bridge out, road closed, river crossing ahead. But the Lord's not lost. He knows the way. The road is narrow. The way is hard. But our Lord is faithful. Do you trust him? Are you able to rest in him? Even when every earthly indication seems to imply cursing and not blessing, are the promises of God more real to you than the situation around you? Really, the question is, do I trust God more than myself? Do I trust God more than myself? And what hope do we have? What, what confidence do we have that this God is faithful? That he actually knows the way? That, he is, that, he is, that, that, that this path of suffering and sacrifice actually leads toward blessing and glory? Why would we think that? Well, Abram had assurance in the form of the, the promise of God that was spoken for him to hear. We have assurance in the form of the promise of God that was lived out for us to see. Jesus lived his life. says he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was wronged and accused. He was mocked and beaten and whipped and crucified. 1 Peter 2.23 it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In the face of gross injustice committed against him, he didn't fight back. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't fight for his freedom. He didn't question the Lord and struggle against God. He trusted God who judges justly, that God would make all things right in the end. He submitted himself to it. 
He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says this, Therefore, because he humbled himself, therefore God has exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection of Jesus is our proof. That's our hope. Jesus, who humbled himself to the lowest depths, was raised up to the highest blessing. He's the prototype. He's gone ahead of us. That's our guarantee. That those who trust in the Lord, in humility and sacrifice, those who will lose their lives for him, who will give up the things that look like real life in this world and trust in him, give up living for comfort and pleasure in this world, entrusting themselves to the Lord, knowing that he is better like Jesus did. They will find themselves recipients of a new life beyond this life, exalted and honored and blessed by God the way Jesus was. And what is communion? This practice that Jesus commanded us to do together so often. It's our reminder. It's our reminder. It's our regular assurance of that promise. So we're going to partake of communion together, Roman. And, and uh, wow, sometimes that's really funny. Melanie. <laughs> it's our reminder. As we gather shoulder to shoulder, week after week, partaking of communion together, we are God's reminder to one another, reaffirming to one another that, that Christ died in our place. That there is grace and mercy and blessing for those who will trust in him, who will turn from this world and seek after him. And so as we partake of communion together. If you're a visitor with us this morning, you're more than welcome to, to join us in that, provided that that's you. Provided that you are one of those who can say, I have turned from this world and trusted in Christ. He is my life. I'm following him. Now, that doesn't mean I've walked perfect and sinless this week, not by any means, but rather we see our, our sin and our need for a Savior, and we're walking in that continual repentance. So we're going to sing together as the elements are handed out. Um, you're going to find two cups stuck together. Um, the bread is in the bottom, the juice is in the top. So um, be aware of that and just hang on to it. Um, we'll partake together in a moment. Um, would you stand? Let's, uh, let's worship our God together as the elements are handed out.
begins with a million stars Yet still he holds my heart Our Father in heaven The light of salvation Oh, how good is he
God that we have, that he has rescued us from our sin, that he has promised us eternity in glory with him, even if he never does another thing for me. How good is he? I received from the Lord what else I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. same way. He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Partake together. We so often doubt your goodness. We so often struggle and wonder as you lead us through times of darkness, through valley of the shadow of death. But you are good. You are faithful. You are constantly working in us, bringing us through to Christ. That we may see you more clearly, that we may love you more, even through the trials of this life, God, help us to trust in you, to plant our feet on this glorious promise that Christ has died in our place, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you, we thank you for your goodness, your kindness towards us in the cross and in your faithfulness Throughout our days, Lord, help us to trust you more. Help us to walk more humbly before you. We praise you. We want to worship your name. In Jesus' name.